Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and mostly reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship Jesus had in mind. Enjoy and glean from the message. Obviously, I call it 12 steps to recovery after the 12-step model of Alcoholics Anonymous. We'll be going through each of the 12 steps starting tonight. Step one, uh, for the next 12 weeks, we will be going through each of those 12 steps. But I'm going to do a little different slant on the 12 steps than perhaps you've heard before. My recommendation to you, if you don't have one already, to go ahead and and locate, purchase, beg, borrow, or steal. No, I don't steal it. We'll give you a big book. You all know what I mean by the big book. It's the AA manual. They call it a big book. It's actually a blue book. It has different colors. It comes in different sizes and shapes and editions and so on. But it gives you an overview of the program, the Alcoholics Anonymous program, which I want to just put a little plug in for right now. AA is the only faith-based program this country has ever known that has been successful, that has worked. It is a faith-based program. It is not a secular program. Even though it is not religious, it is spiritual and biblically based, as we'll see in our study. But it is the most efficient, most effective faith-based program America has ever seen. Now, it began back in the 30s, following one of the most desperate times in American history, the years of Prohibition. For you history buffs, you know what the years of Prohibition did to this country. Corruption, all levels, crime, and so on. Well, what was prohibition? Oh, prohibition was to keep people from becoming alcoholics. And they actually made alcohol illegal. Of course, that led to all kinds of crime, led to all kinds of problems, social problems, one sort or another. And finally, when prohibition was repealed, in my estimation at least, it was then that God chose to reveal to us what's going to keep people from being an alcoholic. And it was called the 12-step program of AA. I have no doubt in my mind that the 12 steps of AA were inspired by God. And if you know anything at all about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, the founders, Bill W., Dr. Bob, and Clarence Snyder, the early... uh, founders and proponents of the AA program, you realize that they were quite spiritual, though they were not religious. That's twice I've mentioned that. Being spiritual without being religious is vital, absolutely vital, that you understand the difference between being spiritual and being religious. Spirituality is absolutely necessary for recovery. Religiosity will actually destroy recovery. So we're going to 
spend a lot of time over these next 12 weeks writing that to you in various ways of how it is that we're going to learn a new spiritual lifestyle free from the bondage of addictions. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, uh, although I do anticipate these tapes and DVDs being distributed to folks that are studying uh, recovery because they are themselves ensnared and entrapped in the bondage of addiction of one sort or another. But I'm not going to ask you all for a show of hands of how many of you are addicts, okay? And it's not because I just don't want to embarrass you. You know, the reason they call it AA is because it's Alcoholics Anonymous trying to avoid the social stigma and embarrassment of having a problem with addictions. And I'm sympathetic to that, but that's not the reason I'm not asking for a show of hands. I don't have to ask for a show of hands to, to see how many of you are struggling with addictions because I know every one of you are. I already know that. And I don't know that because I've been sneaking around your house watching you. I don't know that because I have some special insight or track. I know that for one reason and one reason only. I know that because of what God tells us, black and white, right here in his work. The root problem of humanity is that we are in bondage. We're in bondage every bit as severe as alcoholism or drug addiction. And tonight we're going to look at the very first step in dealing with that bondage, the very first step in recovery, and that is to recognize and admit that we are powerless, that we cannot fix it, and that our life has become unmanageable. So the very first step we're going to be looking at tonight is we admit that we are powerless over, AA said alcohol, but you could just put a little blank there and substitute in a whole bunch of other things we get addicted to. We are powerless over drugs. We are powerless over the love of money. Powerless over our approval addiction. Powerless over sexual addiction. Powerless over even religious addiction. I would simply substitute one word, one biblical term that we defined at great lengths in the Alpha series, one term in there that would cover all the bases, and that is we are powerless over our flesh. Now, I'm sure all of you remember what the term flesh means biblically, but for those who are just joining us, especially on the tapes, I want to review just very quickly what I mean by this biblical concept of the flesh. When the Bible uses the term flesh, it's obviously not talking about our bodies, our physical bodies. When it uses the term flesh in conjunction with a reference to our physical body, it usually combines it with blood. So it says flesh and blood 
like Paul, when he said, flesh and blood, this physical body of ours, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But when it's used singularly by itself, the term flesh describes a nature or a disposition, if you will, and that is natural that we're born with. The best way to think about the flesh is that it is a selfish and self-centered nature that is totally dysfunctional. And what do I mean by dysfunctional? I mean it will cause you problems and lead you into serious difficulties, not only personally but relationally, and ultimately lead you to some variety or form of death. The flesh, which we all have, inhabits this physical body of ours and actually has a mind of its own. Paul identified that mind of the flesh in Romans chapter 8 as the carnal mind. You'll remember from the Alpha series when we were studying Romans chapter 8, one of the great provisions of the spirit that wars against the carnal mind or the natural mind of the flesh is the mind of Christ. Because all of our behavior, all of our relationships, our, our entire life originates right here between our ears. It originates in what we're thinking, what we're believing, what we're perceiving. The flesh with its carnal mind produces all the forms and varieties of dysfunction. And we're powerless to overcome that. Step one, VA says we admit that we're powerless over alcohol, or as I'm substituting here, the flesh in any of its manifestations. We admit that we're powerless over the flesh and Another thing that we're going to be admitting in step one, that our life has become unmanageable. It's out of control. We can't fix it. We can't change it. Now, I know this is somewhat of a negative note to start on, but it's a vital note. It's an important note because the admission that we are powerless to change ourselves, to fix our terrible situation, is necessary before we'll ever receive the good news of who can fix us. You see, as long as we continue to go around trying to fix ourselves, change ourselves, we don't need a savior. We are in essence, our own savior. As long as we're trying to fix ourselves, as long as we got this idea in our mind that we can just tweak our lives in this fashion or that fashion and live happily ever after, as long as we even have an inkling of an idea that that's a possibility, we will reject categorically any provision of God to save us. We just absolutely reject it. Why would we need God? If we can fix ourselves, we don't need him. I mean, 
can't see him. Most people complain they can't hear him. Can't touch him. What do we need God for? If you can fix yourself, you don't need God at all. So the admission that you cannot fix yourself, the admission that you are in fact powerless, the admission that your life is unmanageable because you're powerless is a first and necessary step toward recovery. Now, the way it ties in with the addiction problems, and I've already mentioned to you there are many different types of addictions, so this would apply across the board, not just in terms of alcoholism or drug addiction with substances, but the way it applies to religious addiction or the way it applies to sexual addiction or to about that retail therapy and everybody gets that, um, that wanting to go out and spend a little money that shopping shopaholics they call them right see the addiction itself it doesn't really matter that's not what we're talking about in this series and I don't want you to get the idea that like so many people and I've heard this over the years well the 12 steps just for those alcoholics you know, and if I'm not an alcoholic, so I don't need the 12 steps. <laughs> well, evidently, you don't understand, A, your powerlessness, and B, what the 12 steps really are. Because the 12 steps describe the most functional, healthy lifestyle any person can ever live. A lifestyle that's based entirely upon the grace of God doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So... To say, well, I don't need the 12 steps is like saying, well, I don't need God or his grace or anything else. To say, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so I don't need the 12 steps. It's kind of like I've heard people describe the difference between an alcoholic and a, you know, the difference between an alcoholic and a drunk. An alcoholic has to go to meetings. <laughs> okay. Drunk doesn't have to go to any meetings. He can just be drunk. But an alcoholic, he has to go to meetings. The same kind of logic is applied here when you say, well, I don't need the 12 steps, okay? And of course, I've heard a lot of arguments uh, over the years, being a pastor for 35 years, I've heard you know, tremendous arguments against, from church folks against AA. And without doubt, without any question, anybody who opposes the AA program from a church perspective is doing so for all the wrong reasons. And primarily they're doing so because of their own woundedness and their own toxic faith. In fact, I used this when I was working with the state, trying to provide a toxic faith screen for them uh, that they could, they could screen their applicants for the faith initiatives, various faith initiatives in, in Florida. I developed a toxic faith screen that was a series of questions, a little questionnaire, revolving around, the primary thing was, what is your attitude towards AA? Anyone that has a, a poor attitude towards AA, any faith group that has a, a poor attitude towards AA are of necessity going to be too toxic. And that is, their faith system is going to be, their quote, cure is sometimes going to be worse than the, the disease itself. The attitude towards AA, though, comes about primarily because of ignorance. And the war between the church and AA is collective ignorance. Think of it this way. You have 
a whole group of folks that have never, ever read the big book condemning AA when they don't even know what the big book says, what the program's about. And I'm not saying that they don't have some justification because they've seen people that, quote, go to AA. <laughs> and they say, well, that's, that's what AA is about. We don't need it. But listen to the other side. There are those folks who have never, ever read the good book, the Bible. They've never read the Bible. And they condemn the church. How many of you realize that being a Christian and acting like a Christian are two different things? Do you know anybody besides yourself that doesn't always act like a Christian, even though they are a Christian? Hmm? Of course we do. And if you look at certain, quote, Christian people and what they do and the activities that they're involved with, you say, well, is that going to church? Is that, is that what happens to you when you go to church? Well, I don't want to go to church. We see the same argument is used on the other side when they look at someone in AA and say, well, that's what AA does. So it's collective ignorance on both parts. When you take the time, as we're going to be doing over the next 12 weeks, to look at the actual AA program, what was written down, the steps, and you understand them biblically. And you see the correlation, particularly in what we've studied thus far in our Journey to Freedom course, in, the, in light of the Alpha series, you're going to see that the reality of the AA steps is the reality of the Alpha series lived out. In fact, I'll use this many, many times with folks who tell me, uh, well, I'm in recovery, and and the greatest thing that I've ever gotten a hold of in my life, and it's not just folks in recovery, but folks uh, in the church as well, say the greatest thing I've ever come up with my, and, and discovered my whole life is the fact that I am a brand new person created in Christ Jesus. I'm a brand new person. I say, really? Yep. That is the greatest thing. I've heard the gospel. I know I'm a brand new person. And I'll ask them, well, have you done the 12 steps of AA? And they look at me and say, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I'll actually tell them, unless you've done the 12 steps, you're not living like the new person you are. I'll guarantee you. Now, does this mean unless you've gone to an AA meeting and you sat through a step study of one sort or another, you're not living like Christian? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reality of the principles of the 12 steps. The reality of that lifestyle that's described by the 12 steps is a healthy lifestyle of Christianity. Now, the first place it begins is right here in step one. I'm taking that little digression just to emphasize its importance because all addictions, no matter what flavor they are, they have one common symptom. The first and greatest symptom of a, an, a, an addict of any sort is denial. They refuse to believe they are addicted. 
It's, ir it's an irony that the people that need recovery the most deny that they need recovery. <laughs> they, they say, no, no, I'm, I'm not an addict. I'm not a religious addict. I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a sex addict. And that denial process is so thick and so intricate in their mind that they insulate themselves from any possibility of change. What step one addresses is that denial. We admit that our life, that we ourselves are powerless and our life is unmanageable. We admit that there's a problem. Now that's a very all-important uh, first step, very important first step in any recovery because it breaks through that denial. But what does it take to get there? What does it take to get through denial? In our Safe Harbor program, we continually harp on this in the first 30 days of the program, that portion we call orientation. So I'm going to put you all in orientation tonight, all right? <laughs> You're all in orientation. I'm going to ask you a couple questions here concerning your recovery. First is, do you need recovery? There are some folks that don't think they need recovery. They're in denial, just like I was talking about. No, I don't need any recovery. I'm not an alcoholic. In fact, some people I know that need recovery perhaps more than any alcoholic I've ever met would go so far as to tell you, I have never touched a drop of alcohol. Never touched it. I don't believe in drinking. I'm not an alcoholic, therefore, I don't need recovery. Denial. I'll guarantee you there's another form of addiction there. Why? Because they're a human being with the flesh. They were born with it. I'll guarantee you, beyond any question, there's another form of addiction that they're in abject denial about. What does it take to get someone to actually admit that they're powerless over whatever they're addicted to and their life is unmanageable? This describes the need for recovery. Now there are classic uh, little tests that you can administer on yourself and others series of questions that you might ask yourself or others to determine whether or not you are, would qualify as a, quote, alcoholic. Likewise, you could devise screening tests for drug addiction or for sexual addiction or for religious addiction, all sorts of different addictions, but they all boil down to this same thing. It's a list of things that tell you you need recovery. In the case of alcoholism, drug addiction is fairly obvious. As a matter of fact, I frequently encourage people in recovery by telling them, listen, you're kind of ahead of the game here. You're ahead of the game because at least you know you need recovery. The rest of the world out there is just running around all fat, dumb, and happy. They need recovery, but they don't know it. They're still in denial. At least you know you need. Well, what told them they needed recovery? 
one of the cardinal symptoms of that that will tell them is the law. When you've been arrested four or five times for DUI and you're about to lose your license or you have lost your license, your license has been suspended and you're looking at a jail, uh, jail term or you're on probation, all of a sudden you begin to get the idea, maybe I need recovery, <laughs> okay? See, the sheriff's office and our county jails do a tremendous amount of service to folks breaking through this denial concerning their addictions when they arrest them. And that legal entanglement tells you, well, maybe I've got a problem here. Maybe I've got some kind of issue going on. But you can add usually to that list. There's a whole list of things that you could add here. In addition to legal problems, there's also the problem with homelessness. They're homeless. They don't have a place to live. Why don't you have a place to live? Well, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a rent payment. Well, why couldn't you come up with a rent payment? Well, I spent it on booze or drugs. So I don't have a place to live. I can't manage my money and buy a place to live. One of the most classic issues that tell you you need recovery is you got a lot of problems with your family. Family doesn't want to see you. They're relieved when you leave. They don't want to see you coming. You've got fights, continuous fights and struggles with the family and family issues. Wife, husband problems, parent-child problems, all kinds of family turmoil. That might be an indication that you need recovery. Another big indication is employment or job history. When you can't keep a job for any length of time, that has a strong indication that there's something going on in you that's keeping you from maintaining this job. Now, keep in mind, I'm not listing out all the possibilities here. I'm just giving you an idea of what tells you that you need recovery. What tells you you need recovery are all these circumstances, not the least of which is the biggest issue that applies to all of them, is money. People who are addicted in any form we're going to spend money on what they're addicted to. And that spending due to the addiction will become irrational. It's easy to see that in the case of drug addicts looking for that next fix, willing to sell anything they've got, having to rip off other people get in trouble with the law in order to buy the drugs. But the same principles apply in other forms of addiction as well. Approval addicts will spend all of their money to look good, to outdo the neighbor, 
they'll spend all of their money and and all of their resources just to buy some friends quote friends you see money always comes back down to the main issue because all of these other issues could be dealt with if you had enough money but sooner or later you run out of money to fix these issues so you come to that unhappy position that says hmm maybe I need recovery you're beginning to admit that you are powerless over the flesh over the addiction and your life i.e. all of these things has become unmanageable at that point usually people seek some help AA refers to this as hitting your bottom and when you've got no money got no place to live got no friends families kicked you out you're in trouble with the law another biggie that always surfaces to one degree or another are health issues you're sick you've got various health issues as a consequence of the addiction when all that stuff hits they call that hitting the bottom it's that simple awareness that comes that our life is unmanageable everything is falling apart it's at that point that they're willing to admit to themselves and to others, to God, that they're powerless. Now, I don't know about you all, but every time I've come to that kind of a bottom or a point in my own life, it's not been by choice. Okay, because my choice was to fix everything in my life. That was my choice. That's what I was after. I was after trying to make it work. I was after trying to manage my life. It was not by choice that I came, but it was by design that I came to that point. By whose design? Whose plan? God's plan. Let me give you a biblical story to illustrate this. The, perhaps the most famous one uh, that we typically use in, in recovery terms is that parable that Jesus gave concerning the lost son who, as you know the story, went to his dad and said, give me my inheritance. He left, went to a distant country, squandered his money, his inheritance, and became destitute, wound up feeding the pigs, couldn't even eat what the pigs were eating, and finally came to his senses. <laughs> he said, he admitted, I'm powerless, and my life is unmanageable, which turned him around, headed him back to that. And you all know that story. And we all could use that as an example of someone, you know, when they get into the state of hitting the bottom. I'm going to give you another example, one that may not be as clear in recovery terms in your mind but one that incorporates 
this general idea here that I want you to stay with in step one is that we're powerless over the flesh. There was a fellow who was very zealous, a religious addict, if you will. His name was Saul from a town called Tarsus. Remember him? Saul persecuted the church early on. In fact, he managed to manipulate his superiors to give him authority to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute, arrest, try, imprison, kill if he could, those people who claimed to be Christians in the city of Damascus. And you all know the story. On his way, while riding his horse at 12 noon, brightest part of the day the bright sun was literally outshone by a brilliant light a light that covered the whole earth and it's so bright it blinded Paul knocked him off his horse and in the dirt and he was blinded now we might say well he hit his bottom, and that's why he turned around. And you could use it that way. But that really wasn't his bottom. That was the beginning. That was when Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle. And as you know the story, he went on for three days blind. Ananias came in, laid hands on him. He received his sight. God spoke through Ananias to tell him that he had called Paul for a special mission and purpose. But that really wasn't Paul's bottom. That was the beginning of his life as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His bottom didn't come for some time later. As a matter of fact, if you put the chronology together in the scriptures, you'll find that Paul did exactly what we all do. The very moment that you first come to Jesus, you make yourself obnoxious. This was such a good thing to him. He wanted everybody to know about it, and so he went about preaching to everyone in Damascus. He created such a stir in the city that they had to actually let him down over the, over the city wall in the dung basket. In other words, they flushed Paul down the toilet. Get rid of him. Get out of here. You're going to kill us all. He spent the next three years in the Arabian desert by himself, not just because he probably stank, but because God had a purpose in teaching him. And he spent three years. He was there. He was actually transported into the third heaven and saw things and heard things he was not ever permitted to speak about. Then he went back home to Tarsus. Back to his old job, making tents, back to construction work. For the next 14 years, after three years in the Arabian desert, he stopped off in Jerusalem just to see the boys on the way back, freaked them out, and they, went on, they sent him on home. So now it's closer to 17 years from the day he was born again became a Christian. 
fellow by the name of Barnabas, son of Consolation, a counselor, who was well-to-do, went searching for this guy, Paul. Fourteen years after he'd been back at home, and he, he finally found him, making tents. He said, listen, man, I want you to come with me to Antioch. No self-respecting Jew would ever go to Antioch because it's all Gentiles. So you don't have to worry about the Jews. We're going to go teach the gospel in Antioch. And Paul went to Antioch. And he taught. That was after 17 years. He'd been a Christian now. Follow me. He'd been a Christian for 17 years. Now it was from Antioch that he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. And later, a couple of years later, he and Silas would go on a second missionary journey. And then he decided he was going to go back to Jerusalem. His, his goal was to get back to his people, to take the gospel back to the Jews. He just had to go to Jerusalem. He was warned of a prophet not to go to Jerusalem. He said, ain't nothing good going to happen in Jerusalem. Sure enough, when he went back to Jerusalem, he got arrested. He announced to the arresting officer that he was himself a Roman citizen and he appealed to Caesar. That meant he had to go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Spent some time in Rome, in jail the whole time. And there he began to write letters back to churches that he had established. And he wrote a letter to the Romans and in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes his bottom. Now this was probably written 20 to 23 years after he was a Christian. 17 years plus that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote Romans 7. I'm not going to look at all the context of Romans 7 with you. I just want to make it relevant to our step here tonight. To that section, starting in verse 14, going to the end of the chapter, in which Paul said this. What I do, I don't understand. Because when I want to do what's right, I can't do it. And when I want to quit doing what's wrong, I do it anyhow. His bottom is summarized in verse 23 by his pitiful cry. He said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What was he saying in essence in our terminology? He's saying, I am powerless over the flesh. I can't change it. I can't make it behave. When I want to do what's right, I can't do it. When I want to quit doing what's wrong, I do it anyhow. I am powerless. He not only admitted it to himself and to God, but he admitted it to us. He wrote it right there in Romans 7, verse 23. And he realized... That because of his powerlessness, his life was unmanageable. 
and cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see, step one, the very first step of our recovery requires a realization on our part that we have absolutely no power whatsoever to affect any change in the flesh. We have no power over alcohol. We have no power over drugs. We have no power over sex. We have no power over money. We have no power over approval of others. We are powerless. And as a result, our life has become unmanageable. Now at that point, you have to make a decision. You know, as we've illustrated here, you need recovery. But here's the fundamental decision that has to be made, not only at that point, but from now on, through all the steps. The question is now, I know I need recovery, but do I want recovery? See, there's a big difference between people who just need recovery and people who want recovery. There's thousands of people out there running around every day that need recovery. Even though they themselves may be in denial, you can look at them, you can see their life, you can see how unmanageable it is, you can see everything falling apart and their families, you can see losing their jobs, mismanaging their money, you can see all kinds of issues and problems with them. And you say, man, they need recovery. Yeah, they need recovery. Well, what's the problem? They don't want recovery. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons which we'll go through as we progress along in our step study here. There's a whole bunch of reasons as to why they don't want recovery, not the least of which is they don't understand what recovery is. Because in between the needing recovery and the wanting recovery is kind of a no-man's land called abstinence. And many, many people confuse abstinence with recovery. Just because you abstain from drinking doesn't mean you're a recovered alcoholic. Just because you abstain from drug use doesn't mean you're recovering from drug addiction. Just means you're clean and sober. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to measure recovery in terms of abstinence. Well, how long have you been clean and sober? That doesn't necessarily mean you've been in recovery. So to be fair, a lot of folks don't want recovery simply because they don't know what recovery is. I like to share with folks a picture of what recovery looks like. And without going into detail, because our time is short tonight, I want you just to imagine for a moment the most satisfying life you could ever possibly live. The most satisfying, tranquil, calm, peaceful life. That which the program calls serenity free from fear, free from confusion, a satisfying, peaceful, calm, serene life. That's recovery. 
It's not abstinence. I heard it said one time, someone in the program, that the worst reason to get clean and sober is to be clean and sober. To abstain. That's miserable. That's that white knuckle in it. It's kind of like a buddy of mine that decided he was going to recover from cigarette smoking. Quit smoking. It's about this time of year, you know, that was his New Year's resolution. Quit smoking. So I called him up a couple of days later. I said, hey man, how you doing? I didn't, I didn't ask him about his smoking directly. I just said, what are you up to? And he said, I'm not smoking. That's what I'm up to. <laughs> That's abstinence. <laughs> okay. Abstinence is, I'm not smoking. I'm white knuckling it. Hating every minute of it. That's not recovery. To want recovery, you have to know what recovery is. So we're going to be explaining that as we go along. But I want to leave you with step one. Admitting that you're powerless and your life is unmanageable. I don't want to just drop you there because <laughs> that's a terrible place to be in itself, isn't it? Powerless and my life is unmanageable. So let me go ahead and connect the next two steps real quick with you. That's just step one. It's necessary, but it's followed immediately by step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, trying to fix your life, trying to fix other people's lives, over and over and over and over again with the same consequence, the same result. That's insanity. Step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, if we're powerless, obviously it's going to have to be a power greater than us because we done tried to fix ourselves and it hadn't worked. So it's got to be a power greater than us. A power greater than us could restore us to sanity. Step three, turned our will and life, made a decision to turn our will and life over the care of God as we understood him. So what we're going to be learning about is how it is that God deals with this problem we've identified as the flesh. You can say how it is that God deals with your alcoholism if that's appropriate for you. You can say how it is God deals with your sexual dysfunction, if that's appropriate for you. How it is God deals with your whatever addiction form it takes. I'm just going to call it how God deals with your flesh. Because you're powerless. You're, you can't deal with it. The quicker you realize that, the sooner you admit that to yourself, to God, and somebody else, the quicker you can want recovery quicker you can enter into a satisfying lifestyle. These three steps we're going to be focused in on, step two next week, these three steps give us the connection we need for a healthy lifestyle of recovery. It all begins with admitting that we need it. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook Subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 